So I have this saying, civilization's an alcoholic. And it's just a reminder to me that our civilization may be founded upon, profoundly founded upon alcoholism. But you want to talk about addiction. What's easier to give up, your smartphone or alcohol? If you want to have a healthy relationship, you need to be around people with healthy relationships. And when you are alienated from community, addiction becomes a, an extremely serious threat. That scene was outrageous. We're talking about a world of people that the average person in America could not, not only could not navigate that world, but not even begin to understand the rules of that world. Please tell me you weren't in your room snorting Shilajit. And- wow. It's pretty um, crazy to be on TV with guns. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sometimes I'm like, is that really me doing that? I'm super stoked for today's episode. We've got a guest and an old friend, Daniel Vitalis. We're going to be sharing a conversation with him that's going to be wide ranging. But first, I want to read a little bit about Daniel from his website. Daniel Vitalis is the host of The Wild Fed on the Outdoor Channel, which is now in production for its fourth season. For 10 years, he lectured around North America and abroad, offering workshops that helped others lead healthier, more nature-integrated lives. A successful entrepreneur, he founded the nutrition company SirThrival.com in 2008. He's a registered Maine guide. He's a writer, a public speaker, interviewer, and lifestyle pioneer who's especially interested in helping people reconnect with wildness. After learning to hunt, fish, and forage as an adult, Daniel created WildFed to inspire others to start a wild food journey of their own. Headquartered in the Lakes region of Maine, he lives with his beautiful wife, Avani, and their plot hound, Ellie. Daniel, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I should probably add uh, that we now have our other plot hound, Diaz, who is the son of Ellie. Oh, nice. Uh, So we have a mom and son combo uh, dogs now. Very cool. How are they doing? Amazing. He's still a little bit crazy. uh, Crazy. Don't don't leave shoes and socks around, but Uh otherwise, very well. Very well. Yeah. I love a well-behaved dog. Do you take any time to train them? <laughs> yeah, actually we do, but um, I we could do more, of course. You know, like I wouldn't want Caesar to come over the house on a typical <laughs> evening. I but, love his uh, show, Caesar Milan. Yeah, I like him a lot too. Um, and then there's another show um, I've been seeing, Canine, I think it's like Canine Rescue or something like that on Netflix, more of like a LA kind of hmm. like urban sort of former gangster type dude or from that kind of world. That's like, right. Yeah. I've seen the show is awesome, man. That mm-hmm. guy's incredible. Um, yeah. I love the world of dog training and that whole study of, I guess, operant conditioning is powerful beyond the lessons you learn about dogs. I mean, it certainly applies to ourselves and no doubt meaning to, or not meaning to, I'm sure like Daniel in your journey right now, you're probably using some of those exact techniques on yourself. Oh Yeah. You know, that works great on dogs too. Yeah, yeah, that operant conditioning is a fascinating subject I had no idea about until years ago when you brought it up. And um, just I want to mention to the listeners or viewers that all the links for this episode, if you want to learn more about Daniel, watch all of his content online, you can find the links in the description. And remember, this is a video podcast, so you can watch it on our YouTube channel or watch it as a video on Spotify as well. So be sure to check out Daniel Vitalis through the links in the description after watching this episode. So 
So Daniel, how do you use operant conditioning on yourself these days? I'm just really getting into it. Um, like I told you last week, um, yeah, getting sober this time is so different because I think of the commitment level and the seriousness of it. Um, <clears throat> so tremendous amounts like this wealth of emotional material has been coming up mm. um, that has everything to do with early childhood trauma and conditioning. And um, I'm I'm seeing shit, I'm feeling shit that I didn't even know was there. I mean, I've done, I've been on a pretty committed path most of my adult life. Um, as far as like introspection, self-inquiry, looking in and doing lots of healing in a really grounded, real way. This time it's super different. And somebody turned me on to uh, Gabor Mate, which I, I had never heard of him before. And I had the, uh, the opportunity to interview him once. He's incredible. Oh, did you really? Incredible, yeah. And uh, man, I resonated 100% on every single thing he was talking about as far as like conditioning, environmental programming since childhood and how early childhood trauma has everything to do with like who we are, mm -hmm. you know, and I understood that intellectually, but this time having stuff really come up and looking at this material um, in a far more authentic way was just so different. And then in this podcast he did with Joe Rogan, he talked about uh, the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. So I'm like diving headlong into this material and it's amazing. It's extremely uncomfortable. Um, it's the grief process is mm. extremely real. And mm. it, it, it's, I mean, it's my favorite work. It's really incredible, but it takes a, a really serious commitment and a reevaluation of everything, you know, that I, I thought I was as a human being. Yeah. There's a lot there. Can I unpack some of that a little bit? <laughs> Please. Um, on, on the topic of grief, and, uh, and I think shame might be Dude, huge. the word. I have a therapist that's told me that the research on shame is so scarce and sparse because the researchers, shame is triggered doing the work. Yeah, so they wow. can't do the work. Wow. So it's one of the fields of psychology that's the least yeah. explored because no one has what it takes to uh -huh. go there. Because yeah. we're all dealing with so much of it. Uh-huh. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, another piece I want to bring up is well, the childhood trauma stuff. I mean, I think a lot of people almost feel guilty or ashamed to admit to having childhood trauma because we grew up in such a wealthy first world environment. Yeah. So it can feel like, oh, white girl problems or whatever. Totally. But but the reality is like a lot of us did grow up with a lot of trauma. And then, you know, Daniel, uh, David, what year were you born? 1980. We're 13 okay. months apart. So I'm 78. Um, you're 78 too, Daniel. So we're all born around the same era. So if you remember that period of time, I think it's people know by now, it's kind of cliche to talk about, but this is the era of you leave the house in the morning and you don't come home till dinner time, and no one asks where you are. I'm out totally. jumping trains and riding them across right. town. I'm like, I'm doing all kinds of dangerous things. Like, no one's asking where I am. But one thing that really strikes me, and I got this out of um, reading um, The Fourth Turning by uh, Neil, Neil, oh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, the book, The Fourth Turning, incredible book about demographics. And in that book, he talks about the films of our childhood. Mm. And if you remember, the films um, that depicted children often depicted them as terrible, evil beings. So you had like Chucky, oh you God. had like <laughs> Firestarter, 
mm-hmm. Children of the Corn, these kind of films where there were evil kids, Rosemary's Baby. Now, when you look at how kids are depicted a generation later in films, you know, we it flipped over to like the Barney kind of side of things and everything went super gushy feely and helicopter parenting came in. But that was after us. We were during an era where children were looked at as like kind of a real pain in the ass and maybe yeah. evil. So at that time, a lot of the trauma that we grew up with was just the fact that kids were more ignored. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. it was sort of some of it is was just built in, not even just that you were being beat up or abused in some way, but some of it was just built into the culture at the time. And then now we've shifted to this no, every kid is special. Every kid gets a trophy. When we grew up, it was like, no kids special. You're all worthless. Get out of our hair kind of a vibe. So that's another big piece too, I think that probably needs to get looked at because our parents were from a generation, they were in like a type time of self-exploration. The fifties had given ways to the sixties and seventies. And there was this expansion of consciousness and people were self-actualizing and the kids kind of were like forgotten about a little bit. Oh yeah. And so that's the milieu that we grew up in. And I think that's fundamental to understanding some of the stuff we'll talk about today and how kind of we all got to be here because the generations change constantly. So it's not like this is a consistent flatline environment. It's like a waveform of, of very um, like over parenting and under parenting. And we oscillate generation to generation back and forth between those. Yeah. I remember so uh, countless times, my mom just saying, get out of the house, like go, like, I don't even care if you get into trouble, just like, mm-hmm. don't get caught and don't get caught near the house. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, go. And we, you know, we found all kinds of trouble, you know, cause that's just what young, oh, yeah. younger boys Remember are you, looking like, for. used to fight. Oh yeah. Used to get in fights. Remember like parents being like, well, if someone, someone's, you know, says something to you, you, you punch him in the face, like yeah. really different era yeah. that we were in. I mean, now yeah. it's like you get arrested, but it used to be right. Like people used to circle around and be like, fight, fight, fight. And kids would fight. And I mean, you know, it's just a totally different time. It's remarkable. Yeah, it is. And like my daughter's mom, she has a couple of other kids. And uh, once they were like, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, they lived not too far away from the school that her kids went to. And she didn't even let them ride their bikes to school, which was like less mm-hmm. than a mile away. Yeah. And I remember walking like when I went to high school, I was walking three miles or more yeah. by myself at like five o'clock in the morning to get to, to school. I yeah. remember coming home from taking my SATs and my mom was like, where have you been? I was like, I was got back from taking. She's like, I didn't even know that you were like about to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I, I also want to just mention on the, the topic of Gabor Mate, um, I had the opportunity in uh, Vancouver to see the area where he oh, yeah. had, had worked with, you know, a very, not just drug addicted population, but a, but a, a population of, of street folks. So I got to kind of see that environment and um, understand a little bit of like where he's coming from, like truly mm-hmm. a realm of hungry ghosts. Mm-hmm. And of course you can find that actually the, I'd say those communities are expanding mm-hmm. um, under the kind of current, Mm-hmm. whatever socio-political environment we're in because now you can go find like encampments in any city. I mean, yeah. here in Maine, you know, it's amazing to me, but places where, where, where people are living at the edge of life and death every single day yeah. and addiction controls every moment of every day. 
and like true desperation exists. Yeah. So also, you know, as we talk about addictions today and stuff, I just, cause you brought up Gabora, I just want to say like that I understand as we talk about this, I'm talking about it from a place of never having had to be at that level. Right. You know, it's so frustrating to me today to hear conversations about homelessness mm. or, you know, what, what, what is the politically correct way to say it? There's like a, the unhoused or something. Unhoused, that's right. Interesting. Because again, growing up and now what I understand was like a, a very left-leaning media environment, which I thought was a balanced media environment as a young person. Same here. That I had the impression there was these people who had like lost their job and could never get a footing again. Right. And then over the course of my life, being a v- extremely eccentric, outspoken, pierced and tattooed wild child, I have never not been able to find work. I have never no. not been able to figure out how to make things come together. Right. And over time started to understand like, oh, these people aren't like that because they just lost their job and couldn't. This is severe drug addiction and mental illness. Right. And the two things are obviously bedfellows. And it's so frustrating to hear the conversation around that world as talked about as if we're just talking about people who are down on their luck. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. And I had the opportunity once in Santa Monica, actually twice. I um Oh, that's right. I did do an immersive yeah, you went undercover. urban survival course and go live amongst the homeless population there. Dude, we're not talking about people down on their luck. We're talking about a world of people that the average person in America could not, not only could not navigate that world, but not even begin to understand the rules of that world. But we're not talking about people who just, you know, got laid off. I mean, we're talking about people who are in very deep with the demons, yeah, personal demons of mental illness and drug addiction. So anyway, I just want to say I recognize that as I talk today about my like addictions and my issues and, you know, the issues you guys have is like we've, you know, I would, I'm never going to sling around that word privileged. I can't stand the way that gets used today, but, but in its older meaning, we've experienced these things in a more luxurious environment of mental health, I guess. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was, when I was in high school, um, I was a a Christian and I was a part of a homeless ministry. So every Sunday we would after church, we would make all this food and go underneath the Burnside Bridge in Portland and just give out clothing, blankets, and food. There was almost no preaching. It was just like getting to know a lot of these people. And I also did um, a project in high school um, for a class, this uh, research project, and I did it on gutter punks, which was this like emerging thing in Portland. Yeah. And so I went down there with money and I was giving these kids my age at the time, 17, 18 years old, you know, five bucks or something to let me interview them and maybe take a picture of them. And every single one of them, for them, it was voluntary, you know, and they they, they grew up in like abusive situations, but for the most part, they were all like Slipknot fans, you know, like just They're in every town, dude, or every city. Totally. Yeah. Always have a dog. Always have a dog. It's like, how are you? They always have a pit bull. And it's like how are you taking care of this dog on the street like this? Well, speaking of that, have you noticed this too? Because it's certainly something I've noticed that those people with the dogs, those dogs are nine times out of 10, always way better trained and behaved than household dogs that people have walking down the street. You got all day. You're not going to work. (laughs) You got all day. Yeah. So they really get to form a bond, I guess. Yeah. 
I because agree. the neighborhood dogs, the neighbors walking their dogs down the street, they're, the dogs are taking the human for a walk, pulling on the leash. But I don't see that with the uh, yeah. unhoused. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting phenomenon, the, the sort of, um, I, I've always called them crust punks, but you call them mm-hmm. gutter punks. But yeah, that's that. It's typically, I'll see like a young couple, a lot of denim and leather and spikes, a lot of face tattoos. Um, and often like seem to be vagabonding from city to city to city. They seem to move around a lot. Anyway, that's just a fascinating phenomenon to me. I can't imagine what, I haven't been to Portland in a while, but I can't, you know, our oh, Portland I hear. is getting pretty bad. I can't imagine Portland, Oregon right now. I've heard, cause I still have friends that live there and they describe to me areas that, you know, we would go and hang out and they're like, you can't, you, like, there's nowhere to park. You can't park anywhere in like these certain areas because there's just tents all over, like yeah. in the Pearl, in the Pearl district like art galleries and bourgeois cafes and shit. And there's just like encampments everywhere. (laughs) So uh, speaking of Portland, that is where Daniel bro and I grew up. And uh, you know, we lived there for 30 years more, more or less. And then we decided to travel at that time. I just want to give a little bit of a backstory about how we met you. Because it's actually a really fascinating story and a funny story. So I'll try and condense it down. We were living in Portland. We were um, trying to get over our addictions unsuccessfully, but trying. And we were researching stuff on health and nutrition and lifestyle habits to become a better person and clean up your act and all this. So that's how we found you online because you were, you've always been prolific ever since we found you online, just constantly putting out videos and talks about health and nutrition. And so I was really consuming your content. And then I heard that you were going to be at a conference in Los Angeles. And so I was like to Daniel, I said, we should go down there and just participate in it, get out and meet some people, you know? And so he said, okay. So we decided to hitchhike down there. We got rid of the few things that we had. We had a little bit of money and we just hit started hitchhiking from Portland down to Los Angeles. And we showed up at this, what was it? The Hilton hotel. It was. Hilton Hotel, so a nice, big, clean, bright hotel with like, I don't know, more than a thousand people there. And here comes Daniel and I pretty much barefoot and with our backpacks on. We show up at this conference and just start volunteering. And that's where we met you. And there's some other things I want to say about that. But there's something I haven't told you since ever that I wanted to share with you. It's a really funny story about the first time you and I actually met. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, it was super awkward for me. I'm curious if you remember this. So um, I went to a bathroom in the lobby just to go pee. And I walk in there. Barefoot. Yeah, and I go pee. And then as I'm walking out, you're walking in. And and it it happened so fast. You just passed me and your eyes went down to my feet. And then your face went like this. (laughs) Because you were disgusted that I was walking in the bathroom barefoot. bathroom barefoot. And, and I was like, so crestfallen at the time. I was like, oh, David oh. Vitalis, like, look, gave me that gnarly look. Cause oh, I just man. wanted to. Well, if you guys had had a pit bull back then, I would have assumed <laughs> that we you were, were going town to town as crust punks. I remember you guys, cause you had big backpacks too, too. Like you guys were roughing it. And uh, yeah, you, you didn't come in looking like um, you'd just been to the salon. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I, <laughs> I just do wanted... now though. I do now though. Yeah, yeah, now yeah. You look yeah. very cleaned up, of course. <laughs> so anyway, um, I just want to say that that was difficult for me at the time, but I've completely gotten over it because I would have given Obviously. myself the same look because 
at the time, I just wanted to be barefoot. And I didn't really know a lot about hygiene, I guess. But to me now, walking into a, and I'm sure the listeners agree, walking into a bathroom, a public bathroom barefoot, I wouldn't do that. Jesus Christ, that Dude, is unbelievable. I've never been to a, a frequently used urinal that's got a dry floor in front of it. Dude, it's insane, man. But that was It's funny. amazing how the stream makes its way back to the person and some of that <laughs> bypasses the edge of the urinal. And I don't know why we haven't, I don't know if people need to stand closer or what, but it's always wet. I hate even in flip-flops where you're like, oh, it's a little close. And, you yeah. know, I think a little context for the listeners, I'm like, I've been one of those barefoot advocates over the years, right, a yeah. major one. So uh, I'm sure that was like a little bit added to it a little bit like, Hey, this guy's been like promoting this idea. And then he's looking at me like I'm a grind bag. Cause I'm, yeah, yeah, you get it. So yeah, we were definitely like, but it, we were going overboard with the barefoot thing. It was a bit too much. <laughs> There's yeah. a limit. Well, I think we were part of a culture at the time where everybody was overboard. Yeah. If you were like a real part of it, if you were, you know, I mean, there was a lot of people who were accessory to it. But um, something I've been thinking about for years, I think I mentioned this to you, uh, David, at one point recently, is that I really hope that at some point I like fantasize someone wants to make a documentary about that time. Because now you see a lot of documentaries about especially containing a lot of found footage from things that have happened in the past. Great example. Did you guys see Wild Wild Country? Oh, yeah. Osho? Yeah, like, that was good. something like that about that scene at the time because some very wild shit was going on right i mean mm. i can remember some very wild times and something that's interesting to me is this is seems to happen whenever there's an ideology around mm -hmm. something and certainly we were part of this like very multifaceted ideological world at the time is that and I've been hearing Elon Musk talk about this a little bit. He keeps saying that the most likely outcome is the most ironic one. Hmm. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've heard him say that. Mm -hmm. But um, similarly, I see it like this. Things, when they get ideological, tend to become the almost the opposite of what they're supposed to be. For sure. So people would have looked at that scene and been like, oh, wow, raw food veganism. This is going to be people who live a super clean life. They they go to bed early. They exercise a lot. They take the you. The reality was what like sex, drugs, and rock and roll in that scene. That scene was outrageous, and people were doing many healthful practices, but the overall lifestyle was pushing people into extreme imbalance. If you were really deep in that world, no one was sleeping, and it was just like up all night partying and a lot of tobacco use, a lot of drug use, a lot of you know what I mean, but. Oh yeah. The out from the outside, everybody thought this was like this puritanical health scene. Oh man, so we were raging it up after it's those like if you were, you know, the Osho world, you know, it's like, oh, okay, these are people, it's like a Hindu type of Indian philosophical peace religion. But then you see what was going on in the background. They're poisoning people in town, they're amassing weapons. It's like things become the opposite of what they're supposed to be <laughs> when there's a rigidity about the mm -hmm. ideology. Totally. And it becomes a mockery of itself. And that world we were in certainly exemplifies it yeah there's that other wow. story that kind of the, not as bad as the barefoot in the bathroom thing but <clears throat> this is probably our third conference or something like that and every every night after the conference it was like people would come back to our room you know and we're just like draining bottles of wine and like cases of beer 
And I remember running into you in the elevator. You had just left my room and we, I was coming back from a smoke break and you were like, please tell me you weren't in your room snorting Shilajit. Because we had like powdered Shilajit and we were doing fucking rails of it. <laughs> I remember one time at the Eden Hot Springs Hotel. This was the time when everybody was into that stuff called Ormus. Do you remember that? The oh, yeah. rearranged monoatomic elements. Yeah. So I had this little vial that I had paid some ungodly amount of money for this like luminous white, almost iridescent powder. And I come into my hotel room and there's three topless girls had broken into my room and they're snorting it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, this is supposed to be like, what is this scene that I'm in? You know, but it was, um, anyway, I think one day there might be a documentary and I would love to get to be interviewed awesome. for it because yeah. I just, I have a lot of, I have a lot of stories that I would love to see the light of day one day. Yeah. Like kind of at the same time as when I became that private chef for the billionaire, Peter Nygaard. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, that was crazy too. There's a whole side story. It's an octopus, right? It's like, there's a lot of tent, like a lot of, um, when there's that much insane energy, it attracts yeah. a lot more insane energy. And there's all these side tangential stories that were connected to that world. Nygaard being one of those people who was had a connection to that scene. And it's just interesting all the different ways that energy spilled out of what we were doing. Cause we are generating oh, yeah. quite a, quite a lot of, quite a lot of energy and yeah. it spilled into a lot of different quarters and a lot yeah. of it became mainstream, which is also mm -hmm. kind of shocking and wild to me. Yeah. And I feel like, um, those were all examples of addictive behaviors and addictive yeah. psychology, you know, that we bring to the table yes. and we bring it, we bring it to goji berries and all of a sudden yes. we're, we're, you know, we're going to make this whole fucking world in a really dysfunctional way. Well, there's this idea that you can eat yourself into wholeness or you could eat yourself into a kind of being a perfected being, a luminous entity, or even an immortal. If you just eat mm -hmm. the right food, right? That was what was going on there. If you can eat the right herbs and the right food, you can bypass all of the really difficult personal work of facing trauma, of facing down your addictions. And instead of having to do that work, you could just eat goji berries and shilajit and then you don't even have to think about it, right? That was almost right. the mentality, not mm -hmm. obviously explicitly stated, but implicitly, mm -hmm. it was like, if I eat the right food and I do the right yoga practice or whatever it is, all that stuff will just get dealt with. Right. And I wanted to say also in reference to your sort of opening statements, Daniel, that because you were talking about how difficult this work is and how you're facing, even though you've done a lot of this and been in this work for many, many years, now you're mm -hmm. facing a whole new round of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just wanted to say like, that's why we call them blind spots. Right. And you, cause you just don't know. And at right. the time, looking back to myself then, right. There were so many things that I could not see about myself that I get, it's cringy to me. I mean, I feel mm -hmm. shame. I like look at myself at the time and things that I would do in the world. And I'm just like, I'm embarrassed and ashamed that I didn't see myself for what I was. In fact, I had a very, um, I like had rose colored glasses about myself, right. mm -hmm. but then I saw lots of bad behavior in other people. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was not even remotely aware of my own contribution to it. Right. You know, and that's blind spots. And so I thought at the time, 
And I've thought this about many things. That was just one thing I've been involved with in my life. But many times in my life, I thought if I lived the right way, I could fix these things about myself. Mm -hmm. And now I know the truth of it. I think it's the truth of it, which is that I have to actually walk through that really uncomfortable, difficult stuff. I have to face down. Mm -hmm. You know, you said like the body keeps the score. It's like, I've been seeing a really uh, fantastic uh, body worker here and he's like a Cairo uh, by training, but he's specifically trained in a bunch of these other modalities. And one of the things he does is a lot of x-ray and then uses some kind of body scanning software. Mm -hmm. And so that the work he's doing is extremely targeted. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of people over the years who've done willy nilly work on me or whatever. Anyway, I like this because it's like, I'm looking at the x-ray. He's looking at the x-ray. We know what needs to change in my body. So he's been releasing some chronically stuck areas, particularly at the bottom and top of my spine. And I'll leave there and I'll be driving home. It's a long drive for me. Hmm. And I'll just have this melancholy come over me. Hmm. And I'm like, what is this, man? My life is, I have an incredible wife. I mean, I won the wife lottery. I have an incredible job. I mean, I make a TV show that's all just based around what I love. It's like, I'm, I'm so blessed. Yeah. I have just an incredible home. I have awesome friends, hobbies, like living a really good life. I don't have anything I'm sad about. And it's like, what is this? And it's like, Mm -hmm. this is the emotions that caused those bones to stick together when I seized up out of fear and Mm -hmm. trauma and abuse and neglect and all the things that I went through. And these patterns took place in my body and I've just carried them ever since. Yeah. And somebody gets in there and breaks that free and I got to go through those feet. It's like, I got They can't leave your body till you face them down. Right. You know what I mean? And, and what you end up doing is of course, as you guys know, is like, well, I'll self-medicate this anxiety away. I'll self-medicate this sadness or this shame or whatever it is. That's, and it doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. As you guys know, it can literally be goji berries. If you want it to be, if you dig a deep enough hole for yourself, make it into anything. Yeah. So, now I'm, it's kind of a, I'm really into, um, endurance in my fitness right now. Mm-hmm. And so I often say like, you know, I leave my inner bitch behind at like 20 minutes of whatever yeah. I'm doing. So let's say I'm running and I'm going to run for an hour. It's not like the first 20 minutes are fun. They kind right. of suck. And mm-hmm. all this, the voices in my head for reasons why I don't need to do this. Right. But then I've learned that when I beat that part, it's like I leave that body behind and and I run past it into freedom yeah. or bike past it into freedom. So I'm learning to look forward to the discomfort yeah. because on the other side is a kind of freedom. And totally. that makes it a lot easier to deal with like the childhood stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like my mommy stuff and my daddy stuff that like I have never wanted to look at. I just wanted to be done with. Or didn't even know that I was you over. had to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And now I realize, oh, it will suck going through that. But, uh, but on the other side, I'll have that same freedom that I feel, you know, running or swimming or whatever it is. I love that example because I do love, I haven't been into running for a while, but I'm looking forward to getting back into it now that I'm sober and like not waking up, just like feeling like a total piece of shit. Um, <laughs> running, I love running for, you know, at least five to 10 miles, but you're right for like the first 20 minutes, you're just like getting into the groove. And then after that, it's effortless. Yeah. 
and ecstatic, kind of ecstatic, right? Super so ecstatic. Cool. And I have the same experience when I get into the emotional processing. Mm -hmm. And some of the people that live on the land that I live with, I mean, they've seen me for days and I'm just sitting under these super tall cottonwood trees, reading this book, sitting in meditation, just processing this stuff. Because uh, once you get past that first little hump, the the rewards are just immense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, that's good to hear. I was going to ask you um, about your fitness practice now, because that was another thing um, in the early days when I first tuned in you, you obviously talked a lot about foods and herbs and health and nutrition. But another component that is something that you got really into was fitness, moving your body. You trained in that, what is it called? MoveNet. Mm -hmm. You got yep. certified as a MoveNet um, practitioner. Um, moving at something really cool link in description for people who want to learn more about that. And you set up a whole like obstacle course at one of yeah. your homes in Maine. Yeah. Is, is that something you're still, cause you mentioned running, like how's your overall fitness practice now? Because I know mine is shit. All I do is sit on my ass and edit at the computer. You play volleyball once a week. I play volleyball once a week, which is really good. And I have <laughs> been doing some laps at the pool, but um, a, I love it when, uh, when you're deep in the fitness game, it's very fun to listen to your friends say things like, yeah, you know, I like the other day, my brother-in-law was like, uh, well, you know, I walk the dogs every day. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but, uh, but also on top of that, um, well, you guys have known me over the years and you've seen me probably fit and you've probably seen me looking a little fat at times too. Like I, I'm somebody who has to really, I love food. I love eating. I grew up in an environment where I don't want to try to front like we didn't have food, but like mm -hmm. food wasn't um, super consistent and mom wasn't always up to the task of cooking either. Mm -hmm. She sometimes was in bed for days at a time or in rehab or whatever. So mm. I grew up having to figure out how to feed myself, which is what led me to become the guy that you first met, which was a public speaker about food and nutrition. Like that came out of me asking the question, like, what am I supposed to be eating? Cause I have to figure that out on my own. And fitness was another important piece for me because I was a fat kid and I was not an, I, I didn't have a dad at home. Um, I did have a stepdad for a period of my life from when I was about seven to probably about 12 or 13, but but I never had like a, you know, I, I grew up around my mom and she wasn't into fitness at all. And um, that wasn't part of my lifestyle. So, you know, gym class was like traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. um, very traumatic. I did not, I probably would be today what's called an incel in the sense that I, I wasn't like dating or I wasn't comfortable around girls. I know it's hard to imagine guys, but <laughs> I, I was uh, very uncomfortable around ladies. I, I was, um, fitness rescued me from a life direction that I was, a path that I was on. Many of the people who were my friends when I was a young teenager died of drugs and suicide. Many went to prison and the ones who didn't are sort of scraping by in life. When I turned 16, I had a major life change. In fact, it's funny because it was facilitated by LSD. I was, hmm. I was on LSD. I'm sitting there with my um, roommate at the time. We both worked at Wendy's 
And uh, it was like my first real job. And I had gotten kind of fat because at night what's happening is I'm the closer. So there's a pile of fries left over and bacon. And at the end of the night, I'm eating like I'm gorging on this stuff. And my my roommate is a 12 pack of old Milwaukee every night. Yeah. Every single night, every night. And I'm tripping one night looking at him and I have this realization like I can't go down Mm. this road. Like Mm. I need to get sobered up. And then I... I had simultaneously around the same time, um, I had been partying at, I'd been partying at this girl's house who looking back on now was like a girl who just, you know, like I wouldn't really associate with today, but at the time I just thought she was just stunning, stunning. And everybody kind of filtered out and she asked me to spend the night at her house. And I, I was like, um, I had no idea what to do. Yeah. You know, it was like an invitation, but I just didn't know what to do. Uh-huh. So I, I just went friend zone all night. Yep. And, but during that evening, resolve myself, like I'm starting to go to the gym on Monday. So this time in my life, I got sober and I started to work out. And so that radically transformed my life, um, forever. And so that's kind of how I came to be the person you guys originally met. So fitness has been a part of my life for a long time. But, um, and move nets, just one of the modalities I've trained in. I mean, I've just trained and so I've had so many certifications and workshops and fitness over my life. So that's just like one piece. If you saw my house today, I mean, I have a dedicated cardio room with three machines in it. I have a whole gym in my basement. I have a track in my backyard that I built. I mean, I'm very, I'm very into it. Um, so fitness is huge for me. And right now, probably the biggest thing for me is, is I'm realizing I, if you had asked me 10 years ago, what was more important diet or exercise? I thought diet. Now I see it the opposite. I was, Mm -hmm. I think I was just wrong. Um, and I was too young to know, right. Shout out to all those young influencers out there who don't know anything yet, but are out there influencing (laughs) for sure. I was gen one influencer, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't even called that. I'm like, OG influencer. So I didn't know, I didn't know that I didn't know anything yet. So, um, anyway, what I see now is where would you find healthier looking people like at a mom and pop health food store or coming out of the gym? That's so true. You just look at people coming out of a GNC. They could eat garbage all day. They look like fitness models. Then you go to where people are supposed to be healthy, like those Hilton conferences we used to go to and everybody's skinny and pale and dried out looking and their hair is all splitting at the ends. You know what I mean? You remember how looking back now, you realize how unhealthy all those people were that we were mm-hmm. around all the time. Yeah. You know, and then you go down to any gym and you see people who don't really think about food very much or in the way that we think about it. And yet they look fantastic. I I think now the evidence is very clear that the most powerful anti-aging drug, the most powerful health practice that exists is extremely vigorous, regular exercise. And I just don't, I think if you could only do one practice, like I run a spreadsheet of my pre- my daily practices. I mean, I just to manage it, it's like it's too many things. You know what I mean? Like you know this whole like stacking and all the that shit where it's like if you want to get all your stuff in, like your sauna sessions and your cold plunges and your morning smoothie, and you want to make sure you're getting all the sleep and you you know if you want to do all that stuff, as you guys know, it's a lot to manage it. So. I'm pretty serious about it, but if I could only do one thing, it would be the exercise component. And 
I would I would say it's split pretty evenly between strength training and then cardiovascular cardiorespiratory work. But I just I didn't need as much when I was younger. So that I didn't know mm. what it would be like past 30. So I used to stay lean and trim by just like running around in the desert with you guys right. hanging out. Now it's like hour-long cardio sessions four times, five times a week. It's multiple days at CrossFit. It's multiple days in my basement gym. It's a whole mix of things. And I don't know. There's certainly like you could David Goggins, David Goggins it and take it oh, yeah. to the point where you're like, <laughs> like, thank God for that guy. Because like I ran my first half marathon the other day with my wife and David's in the back of my head going like, the fuck you talking about a half marathon? <laughs> the fuck is that? You know? And I, that's like, a gr I'm glad he exists to drive me on when I need that kind of a, but I don't think there's any question what he's done to himself is super unhealthy. So there are upper limits, but that said, most people are never going to have to worry about over-exercising. <laughs> you can overdo it with food. You can eat too much of a healthy food. You can't, really overdo healthful exercise, you need so much that it's it's actually kind of mind-boggling how much we need. So anyway, I have a very different perspective on that. But today, yeah, fitness is really, really important to me. And um, it was frustrating to me when I was 20 and I was really into my health because I got into health when I was a teenager. You know, as of the story I just told you guys, I was 16. When I was in my 20s, I'm putting in all this work and I would meet people who lived just lifestyles where they didn't think about it. And I'd be like, this person's clearly fitter and healthier than me. And it was so frustrating. I'm putting uh -huh. in all this work and here's this guy who's like partying all night, drinking 30 beers, getting up the next day, go to the gym. And he's like, he, he's amazing. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm like doing everything perfect. But now that I'm 40, I'm going to be 45 this year. Now I look at my peers and you can see who's put the work in and who hasn't. Does that make sense? Like you live yeah, past yeah. your like all the, you know, your genetics are good or, you know, you, whatever it is, like your hormones levels are good, but there comes a point now where I'm like, oh, okay, I'm looking around at other guys who are 45 and I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to see the results. And I think as the decades go on, now I'll see it more in my fifties and even more in my sixties. You don't see it earlier on. It doesn't matter as much. So Anyway, um, all that said, I think diet's really important. I think exercise is important, but exercise will cover the sins of diet and the sins of exercise or not exercising can't be covered by good food. It just, it almost doesn't matter at a certain point. So now I see it's like this. If I'm 80% perfect with my diet, that other 20%, unless it's incredibly egregious, right, almost just doesn't matter. You know, and the social implications of having that wiggle room open up because it's not like food and exercise, diet and exercise are the only components of health. We know it's pretty clear now that it's like, well, sleep's really important, right? Loving relationships are really important. Community's really important. There's all these other components. So if I'm super, super strict with my diet, start to alienate myself from people, it starts to affect my relationship. Mm -hmm. with my wife it starts to take it starts to take away from areas of my life that build health that can't be replaced by that 20% better eating right right so it's like if i if i ate perfect 6 days a week and then on the 7th day i had to pick between having a healthy relationship or being perfect on the food yeah mm, i mean i just 
to the average person, it's like, yeah, obviously. But for people like us who come out of the kind of mind fuck that we came out of of food, mm-hmm. now I understand that there's so much world to experience that it's not worth alienating yourself from it. Totally. And it's like one of the ways to talk about that is like, well, the food when you travel. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I used to travel everywhere with all my own food and water everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's like, dude, if I'm in Thailand, I want to eat the Thai food. Yeah. I want to like eat it with the Thai people and I want to experience like what they're into. I don't want to like totally. alienate myself from that. So building the wiggle room in is really important in the same way that it's like if I have um, some kind of family obligation comes up or somebody passes or somebody's going to graduate or something like that. It's like, I want to work out enough that I can take that day off right. and not feel guilty about it so I can go spend it with people I love. So so I think that's important is that that's one of those balances is making sure that the you're not alienating yourself from community in order. And it's also very interesting how how when you are alienated from community, addiction becomes a an extremely serious threat. And so that's a fascinating, I, I don't know, overlay mm-hmm. between these two topics mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that idea of the, um, who did, who wrote about this? The idea of the, um, the like rat utopia uh-huh. where they would put the rats like in a place where they had access to cocaine, but right. also had access to community and water right. and places to play and all of that. And they found the rats did not become cocaine addicted. Mm-hmm. But then if they isolate the rats and give them access to cocaine, they become massive cokeheads. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why when you're abused and you're neglected and you don't have friends, you become so susceptible to addiction because it becomes your best friend. I remember the very first cigarette I smoked. Maybe it wasn't my first cigarette. I remember smoking a cigarette alone on the street at night with nowhere to sleep. And it was cold. And I remember feeling like that cigarette was, I was probably 13. And I remember thinking that cigarette was like a best friend. Yeah. I could just keep pulling one out when I needed it. And it mm-hmm. felt like it kept me a little bit warm and it had oh, that yeah. glow and that light. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, I'm not alone here. I'm mm-hmm. on the street, but I'm not alone. Right. And that's exactly the problem I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Like when we isolate, when we're isolated, we're very susceptible to taking all that energy that should be diffused out through our community and connections and network of friends and family. And then we put it onto a substance or an activity. and then we now have created a really codependent, unhealthy relationship with that substance or activity. Yeah, and I think that that's really reflected on such a large scale in Western society because everybody is so fragmented. Our Mm -hmm. lives are so cut up and isolated with work and hobbies and now with fucking social media and people are just like obsessed with, you know, second and third and fourth generation influencers. Yeah. Um, and so we just live in a society that is so completely saturated and rife with addictive behaviors yeah. and mental illness. And um, I don't know if it's just because I'm really getting into it now or it's becoming more mainstream and into more common consciousness, um, just how addicted all of us are to whatever it is that we're addicted to. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I don't know, you might have some thoughts on this because you live in a completely different um, like sphere of people, but 
<clears throat> do you think it's becoming more common for people to uh, begin getting more comfortable with looking at their own addictive patterns and behaviors and um, defense mechanisms that we've constructed out of such a dysfunctional society? Yes and no. I think that people like ourselves who've been on this path of self-actualization for a long time in that world, yeah. And if I go on YouTube, it seems like it because it curates the content mm -hmm. that I like. So it seems like it. But I think with the public at large, not really. In fact, um, my therapist said to me not long ago, given your childhood, how are you not a drug or alcohol addict? Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't actually understand it. And I was like, well, I mean, thankfully, I put some things in place really early on. Mm -hmm. I knew that I never wanted to use hard drugs and I, mm -hmm. I've never done cocaine. I've never done... I mean, you guys know me. I have been to the Amazon multiple times to drink ayahuasca, peyote in San Pedro in the desert, catching bufo toads right. out there on the desert and smoking the DMT. Like I've I've chewed coca in Peru. I mean, I'm I've always loved exploring natural drugs, particularly ones that are plant and animal based. But I was extremely careful about hard drugs. I don't know. I thank, thank God. My brother wasn't. He now, you know, my brother now runs about 40 or 50 beds uh, for sober houses. He wow. he's runs sober houses. He's 10 years clean. Wow, he, that's cool. He and I actually were in, well, I don't want to tell his story personally, but yeah. he, he was using um, opiates. Mm -hmm. He was using a bit of everything, but I think the real thing that got him was oxys. I remember he was working for your company, Sir Thrival, for a while. Is he still Yeah, he, and he does, but I'll, I'll be honest, he doesn't need to. He does run operations for us, but he he's now owns real, a lot of real estate and oh. um, you know, a lot of beds for addicts who are in recovery. Um, but he's a very strong fixture in our recovery culture here in Maine. Anyway, he did go down that road. I never did, um, thankfully. And I never really liked alcohol, um, even though I did drink it a lot over the years, but I never liked it. My mom was an alcohol, became an alcoholic when I was about oof, 10 hmm. or so. She started drinking. And she had been a pot smoker when I growing up. Like she had, you know, her own habits, but she didn't drink. And then she, when I had a stepdad, she started drinking. And she started drinking with this woman who was a lesbian. And um, this is like early days when gay culture was starting to become more mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so we called her Aunt Kathy. She was so cool. Like she had a Jeep Wrangler back then. Back in the day, that was like not so common as it is today. And she'd take us off-roading. She was like a cool uncle or something. Mm -hmm. But she was fucking my mom. And, <laughs> and my mom was out partying all the time. And I grew to really resent what alcohol did to her and... Mm -hmm having her come home smelling like with beer on her breath and having the watching her behavior. Like I really always had, I was trepidatious about alcohol and distrustful of it. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I've certainly struggled with addictions over the years, but hard drugs and alcohol were not those for me. But why, how I got here was to say, to answer your earlier question, I didn't understand when my brother was using heroin, I didn't know. 
He was working for me. He had lost so much weight. He had dark circles under his eyes. I was completely oblivious, man. Mm-hmm. He'd come in and eyes all blown out. I would not understand what was happening. I just didn't know the signs and symptoms. Today, I'm, a, I'm just starting to get my head around like, oh, people are taking Xanax. Mm. I didn't know that. I didn't know how common that was. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know, oh, kids are on like Snapchat buying whatever designer drugs they want like uh-huh. yeah. that easily. I didn't know that. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, have you guys read 1984 and Brave New World? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Such okay, formative so- books. Very important books, right? And and both are playing out in very significant and real ways. But if you had to pick one for the East and one for the West, I think it's fair to say the East is going down the 1984 route mm-hmm. and the West is going down the Brave New World route. Mm-hmm. And in Brave New World, everyone's high all the time. That's mm-hmm. how they come right. to love their slavery. Right. right. And they take that drug Soma. Uh-huh. And... um. I see that's what's happening now. Mm-hmm. You can get access to any drugs you want. And I mean, what do you need? Like a backache now to get some kind of hard drugs from your doctor? Totally. You can buy this stuff on the street, fentanyl's in everything. And it's shocking to see the way young musicians promote those drugs to young kids. So when I was a little kid, we didn't we didn't take pills, you know? No. Like maybe we smoked cigarettes behind the barn or school or something. We weren't taking Xanax. Like that wasn't a thing, uh -uh. but now that's a thing. So just to answer your question, I think there's a major awakening happening in a subculture, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you're, if you're somebody who follows, I don't know, you follow Joe Rogan. So you know about the sober October or you follow Andrew Huberman or you follow, you know, those kind of characters, you, you, you seeing a lot more of that awareness around this stuff. But if you're just out in culture, you're probably using some kind of drugs pretty frequently. And I want to point out another thing that I think is interesting. My wife and I have this kind of funny back and forth. My my wife does like to drink, but she's incredibly moderate about mm-hmm. it. Like incredibly, like she's like the most moderate person I know. That's awesome. And she also loves coffee and a lot of it. And I I can, I like, I'll drink a decaf. But I can't drink caffeine. I have to Mm -hmm. be just extremely mindful. So like I produce a pre-workout drink at Sir Thrival, my supplement company, but it's like got, it's made with yerba mate and it's got about 10 milligrams per serving. So, you know, your average pre-workout is like 300 milligrams per serving Mm -hmm. of caffeine. I can't go near anything like that. So I can't even drink tea or green tea or matcha or yerba mate. I, I just can't drink caffeine. We... Go back and forth on this because to me, caffeine's clearly a drug. It fits every, it's clearly a drug. Oh, yeah. And it's probably the most ubiquitous and addictive drug. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating is you can't find a hotel room without that drug in it. It's mm-hmm. in the hotel room. Now, if you get a really high end hotel room, you might get a mini bar in there. But I mean, how many times have you rented a room that had a mini bar? It's like occasionally. Never. Every once in a while, I'll I'll get a room. Like if I spend five hundred bucks on a room, I might get a room that's got a, like a some you know drinks in it or whatever. But not normally. But there's always coffee always. in the room. Oh yeah, it's a drug so ubiquitous that it comes with a hotel room. Yeah, you, you can't go anywhere and not find it. 
You don't ever mm-hmm. have to worry, like, am I going to be able to find caffeine in this town? No. <laughs> like, let's say you're a Coke person. You probably worry, am I going to find Coke where I'm going? Oh, yeah, you got to ask around. You got to. Yeah. Or as, a, as somebody who likes cannabis, it's challenging. It's legal here in Maine. And I live in one of the towns that was the pilot for the dispensaries because most of the state had like a moratorium. So my town's, it's just, it's obnoxious. The number, I live in a small town. The number of cannabis shops is shocking, but state to state, you don't know. (laughs) So if you're a cannabis person, you might show up in a state and not have access. Mm -hmm. You'd never have to think about that with caffeine or alcohol. These Mm -hmm. drugs are everywhere. And so just to go back to what you're saying, I just think like there's going to be a sub culture. It's kind of like when I got into health food, there was no whole foods. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. There was not, not only was there no whole foods, there wasn't even big health food stores yet. Health food stores were 300 square feet and they had like five or six ingredients and they all smelled like an old bag of oats. And that was all you had. Right. We've watched the rise of organic. We watched the small mom and pop health food stores become bigger, more department style stores. And then, then we saw the like things like wild oats come into play. And then we saw whole foods come into play. And now everybody lives in this milieu that's just loaded with all of this organic health food. But it used to not exist. So maybe this idea of sobriety is on that kind of a trajectory where it'll be a major force in culture at some point. But it hasn't been. It hasn't been for a long time. And it's fascinating that during the temperance movement and the prohibition, when there mm-hmm. was an attempt to sort of force sobriety, mm-hmm. it actually, all it did was expand alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So similar to like um, in, in my world of like hunting and animal conservation, real famous story is that the attempt to eradicate wolves was really successful. The attempt to eradicate coyotes actually spread coyotes. So the more coyotes you kill, the more young they give birth to, mm-hmm. and they also then spread. And so coyotes used to be restricted to the desert southwest. That's where they're native to. Now they're in all the states, and they live in every major city in the United States. We, in trying to eradicate them, spread them. So in trying to eradicate alcoholism, which was very rampant at the time, mm-hmm. we actually that led to women starting to drink, which was culturally kind of inappropriate before. Mm -hmm. And it led to stronger forms of alcohol being more popular. Mm -hmm. So now we're in this environment, like, so lest anyone think, well, yeah, but alcohol, you know, sobriety was popular then. It's like, no, it's never been, Mm -mm. it's never been popular. I have a, I have a belief that I entertain. I'm not saying this is my hundred percent belief, but as somebody who's put a lot of energy into thinking about the origins of city-states and civilization and agriculture, there's a really good theory that the reason we started to plant crops was not, in fact, to secure the supply of grains for food, but was to secure the supply of grains for beer. In that the agricultural Neolithic revolution, which we all trace our heritage back to, may have just been about having alcohol all year round rather than Mm -hmm. having just alcohol ceremonies in the fall when the crops came in. Mm-hmm. Um, as our, or the, the wild crops came in as was in the past. So like where you guys are now in that area, you know, every year there was a saguaro wine ceremony, right? Mm-hmm. Like the native people there would take saguaro fruits, ferment it into alcohol for three yeah. days, get wasted. Yeah. And then the rest of the year, the fruit's not around. They don't have that. So it's possible that in Europe, 
it was like, hey, we can ferment barley and wheat into alcohol. Or in Mesoamerica, it's like, hey, we can turn corn into alcohol. Or in Asia, it's like, hey, we can turn rice into alcohol. And that might be why we started domesticating things in the first place. So I have this saying, civilization's an alcoholic. And it's just a reminder to me that our civilization may be founded upon, profoundly founded upon alcoholism. Now, I just oh, find yeah. that fascinating. So I have this saying, civilization's an alcoholic. And it's just a reminder to me that our civilization may be founded upon, profoundly founded upon alcoholism. Now, I just oh, find yeah. that fascinating. It's crazy fascinating. Just fascinating, but not like good or bad. Like, you know. Yeah, no, I guess It you. sounds kind of weird. Yeah, I don't think it's good. Um, oh. But I don't, you know. I'm also in my 40s now and like to reserve strong judgments for places where I'm really sure and have thought it through. And I, you know, I'm like I said, I mean, I watch my wife like have a very healthy, responsible and her family has a very healthy, responsible relationship to alcohol. That took me because I grew up in um, a very low or maybe lowest socioeconomic rung before being unhoused. Like maybe that's the lowest rung. I was like a rung up, you know, but yeah, like welfare, single parent, you know, programs, police, institutionalization. I grew up in that kind of a world. I only saw unhealthy relationships to these things only. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it was like a demon, but now I have all kinds of friends. I have friends that are millionaires and billionaires and life's, you know, I see people who have very balanced lives where those, that substance alcohol is part of it, but it doesn't appear. Okay. Another way to say this is I've seen, I think you have alcoholism in higher socioeconomic brackets that just doesn't have the same outcomes. Mm-hmm. Like I know people that have a they they are addicted to alcohol, but it's not like it's causing all kinds of crazy problems in their lives. Mm-hmm. Versus where I grew up in, if you had alcoholism, your life was going to come apart. Right. <clears throat> so I I try not. I don't want to just. It's like I, I've watched this in my brother's journey where he would like to just say that it's all just bad. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for him to respect some he's had to learn that he ruined his own relationship to these things totally and that's hard because you want to you want when you quit something that everybody else sees they should quit it too mm-hmm. and then you got to go like oh no i fucked up my relationship to alcohol so i can't have it but other right. people maybe they can and it's not going anywhere so some people can be responsible and some people can't so that's why i don't want to just outright just judge it all it's oh, because like, yeah, like it's the addictive behaviors. It's the mental illness of addiction uh, that destroys that relationship with yeah. any substance or any thought form yeah. or anything that we could enjoy. We can corrupt anything in our lives and turn it sex into- Sex is a like, great example because- Absolutely. It's like, how important is sex? I mean, even if you don't want to have kids, how is it, you know, it's crucial to your relationships. It's crucial. I can't imagine having a multi-decade relationship with a partner and you don't have sex. Like, I mean, it just seems like, I don't know that you could, but 
I'm sure you can, but it'd be very difficult. No, Tracy and, starts to get mad if we don't have sex for a week. She's going to love yeah. that you talk about this. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I put it on my spreadsheet recently. You but, got um, to, man. Schedule it. Oh, it's crucial. Yeah. 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 Even if you, even when you think you feel like you don't need to, mm-hmm. and then you get it started and you're like, oh man, I needed that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, but you can turn sex into an addiction. I certainly did in a time in my life. And it was um, looking back no different than any other kind of really unhealthy addiction damaging, but that doesn't mean sex is bad. Mm-hmm. So like you just said, Daniel, it's I, it's your personal relationship to it. I think alcohol is yeah. a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more complicated to make a positive argument for it. Totally. But I think I could if I had to. So, you know, I don't want to judge anybody else, but I do think it's interesting how ubiquitous the substance is. It's everywhere. And promoted. I mean, because like mm. you, we could talk about dysfunctional patterns with sex or anything like that, but they're not promoted. You know, dysfunctional sex isn't promoted. In- wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah, I would probably just I get what you mean. I, Maybe I it is. But like alcohol is like, yeah, yeah, let's let's drink alcohol. Let's drink coffee. Yeah. You know, not so much smoking cigarettes these days. Vaping, um, though, is, I would say, is, vaping, is, yeah, is the huge. new. So that's really yeah. being pushed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, yeah, sex is definitely promoted. And as somebody who's got a nutritional supplement company, you know, there was a time in my life, so I love coca, um, mm-hmm. the, the plant that cocaine's extracted from. Of course, you guys know. I'm sure you guys have chewed it before. That's amazing. I'm a huge fan. Um, I will say I've had nights in hotel rooms in Cusco where I have been fully strung out on those leaves. Hmm. Like it's four in the morning and I'm still chewing them and I'm, I'm feel like shit and I can't sleep and I just keep going. So even though the leaf is nothing like the hard right. drug cocaine, you can abuse it mm-hmm. just like you can abuse leaf tobacco or whatever. But I really like the plant. And at one point myself and a business partner got really interested on in whether or not we could import it legally mm-hmm. and actually went to the DEA and really got a lawyer. We started to like, cause I was like, my goodness, if you can sell an addictive product, I mean, my supplements aren't addictive. Right. So you take them cause you want to take them, but they don't, they don't, they're not habit forming. Right. And I don't want to make it sound like I want to sell addictive products, but I mean, I, I believed in, I believe in coca leaf. So I was like, Oh, it'd be really cool to import that. And man, you kind of have a pretty guaranteed market. Oh, for and so sure. These alcohol companies, tobacco companies, of course, these pharmaceutical companies, their products, I mean, it's incredible. They are allowed to sell mm-hmm. addictive drugs. And of course, they become massively wealthy as a result. So like you were saying about promoting it, imagine if you could promote, if you could have a product that's that habit forming and you can promote it, did you guys, I, I promoted for a long time. I always talked about this documentary called The Century of the Self. Is that three-part yeah, PBS piece? Right, that's very good. And why that's so, one of the reasons that documentary is so powerful is because it tracks the origins of propaganda to Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays. Oh yeah, totally. And he is who worked with the cigarette companies to get women to start smoking. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Because the cigarette companies realized they only had half of the population. Mm-hmm. And they were like, man, we could double our market if we can get women to start smoking. <laughs> and he figured out how to do it. And a uh, very successful campaign where he 
he got all these famous debutantes from New York City and he got them all to agree to light up in one place at the same time. And then he called all the press in New York and got them to come and be there for this event. They didn't know what it was going to be. And the campaign was called, um, uh, what was it? Something of freedom, like sticks of freedom or something mm. like that. Anyway, the idea was like women's nice. liberation. Cause he, he told the average, he told the cigarette companies that a cigarette is symbolic of having a penis. Hmm. It's phallic. And that if you give women their own penis, they'll no longer need the men. And so the idea was like, oh, it's independence for women. And uh-huh. he sold smoking to women as a form of independence and it worked. And, you know, so anyway, it's incredible that it's not just that we live in an environment loaded with addictive substances. And then we live in an environment where we are traumatized in such ways that lead to addictions. Uh-huh. But then we also have <laughs> the the companies that are using extremely sophisticated propaganda and psychological tools that they've perfected for over a century now to get us into it as well. So it's like, it's a very, it's very difficult to thread the needle through that yeah, and come out on the other side, not an addict. Oh my God. Why are these people, these companies doing it as a pure evil? Are they possessed with parasitic evil? I mean, it just escapes my consciousness why this is even going on. I think the further we go, the more it looks like pure evil. But that's probably what happened at the end of all the civilizations. Mm-hmm. Right? So imagine what it was like. Uh, you know, it's a great film, um, Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Right, because it's looking at the Maya right at the end, right before mm-hmm. their collapse, and the cities have not only become incredibly debaucherous mm-hmm. and highly stratified by class, and the elites have become completely out of touch with the food supply. That's where we're at right now in our civilization, yeah. and, and what's happening at the lower levels. But they're cutting people's hearts out, right? And not just a couple people; it's like, like thousands of insane people, insane amounts of people. The numbers stagger the mind. So this has happened, this kind of thing has happened before mm-hmm. multiple times. And it seems like right at the end of a civilization, the behavior of the elites becomes so ostentatious and takes on. So the question is, is this evil in the way that we, we mean it while we're talking about it? Or is it like, is it a role that someone has to play in an emergent implicit psychological dance that happens when there's this many people and Mm -hmm. this much wealth and this Mm -hmm. much movement of Mm -hmm. transactions happening. Does it, is there an emergent behavior at the elite top that is everything we call evil or is evil a preexistent thing that Mm -hmm. some people somehow get hooked on and then are, are like, are these people like Darth Vader doing the will of the emperor mm-hmm. or do characters like Darth Vader or Adolf Hitler, are they emergent out of a system right. that becomes so stratified that up at the top things like we, it's starting to come out, right? It's like, it is yeah. actually pedophilia at the top going on. Yeah. It is sex trafficking going on at the top. Yeah. It is like all this dark, weird shit that's taking place, right? It's like that Epstein story, so fascinating because we all yeah. have a kind of a sense of what it is, mm-hmm. but we 
We're all kind of still waiting for like the the stuff to come out, but right. it's pretty clear now that a lot of very very powerful people are having sex with minors. And I can't believe that Peter Nygaard's still alive. Yeah, un- I just look unbelievable. Yeah, he he was on the islands. He he saw that yeah, shit. <laughs> I, I Epstein, the billionaire I worked with, Peter Nygaard, he's like Epstein, but just not as well known. Yeah, he was pretty much almost as powerful or whatever. But I think the big difference though is that um, he, we can look at Nygaard and go like, oh, Nygaard made his money this way. Nygaard is a fashion mogul. Yeah, you know he is playing out his personal fantasies because he built a life where he could wield the, that power. I'm not saying it's good. Just saying mm-hmm. Epstein were like, this guy's probably working for the government. Uh-huh. We don't know where the money came from. And he's involved in blackmail of very powerful individuals mm-hmm. who have these proclivities. And he is the one who gets puts it together for them, but then probably videotapes it so that he has dirt on all of these ultra powerful players, including high level scientists and physics, right. yeah. which is yeah. like, wait, well, <laughs> then what did they have these physicists working on? Right. Red of blackmail. Like, what are we talking about here? What's going on at the top, man? We don't know, but we're living in a really wild time where it certainly looks like there's evil about, but again, I don't know if evil's in, cause I suspect I, sus- I I suspect that we're all capable of great evil. Oh, yeah. And so if you take all the breaks off of a person, I know what it's like to just have a little bit of a sense of fame, mm-hmm. just a little bit, and what how abusive you can get of that power. So I can't imagine I've, mm-hmm. what it's like at that level mm-hmm. and what kind of behaviors start to emerge. There's very sick people too. So that's another question. Or like, are people who abuse and harm other people evil or sick? And I don't know what the answer is because it's yeah. clear that if you've been, if you're an abuser, it's pretty clear you were probably abused. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer, but um, no, I know amazing. that you want to like stay away from all that shit as much as you yeah. can. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it like that, the emergent aspect, because I, yeah. I just tend to think, it's evil as if I actually believe that in some metaphysical area of the universe, mm-hmm. there's the evil and good. There's a lot going on in our culture right now that you could call satanic mm-hmm. or Luc- maybe Luciferian. I think that's only happening because this culture is a Christian culture. But in rebellion against it, you start to see all the behaviors that we associate with evil mm-hmm. because... Does that make sense? Like it's a Christian oh, yeah. culture. So as people totally. go against the Christian culture, they start to do all the things that are like, Hey, those things against Christianity are what we call evil. Mm-hmm. So I was like, is it evil or did we create a framework yeah. where it's good and evil? Or are those stories based on something real? I just don't yeah. know, but I'm, I'm powerfully taken. I, I'm, I, I went to, um, about five years of Christian school. So when, when I had that stepdad I had mentioned, he was in the military. My mom, we, you know, we were very poor, but we had this little period of time before my mom and my stepdad figured out how to like blow all the money he had saved in the military, you know? Uh-huh. So they got together and it was like, it felt like we were rich for a minute. We uh-huh. were, we were like middle class, but he was 
they didn't know what to do with any of this and you know it was gone very fast yeah but one of the things they did was put me in a private school two private schools and so i grew up around a kind of strange mix of like of mentally ill christianity mm-hmm. so it was like christianity mixed with like end times prophecy and aliens and all oh, this yeah. kind of mm-hmm. wildness but then i went to some like straight up baptist schools so i got a really deep immersive experience of the christian bible and that was I'm grateful for that. Really grateful mm-hmm. for that. The story of the Tower of Babel, are you guys very familiar oh, with yeah. that story? Mm-hmm. So just for the listeners, like the kind of the core idea is like human beings almost in mirroring the behavior of the fallen angels, Lucifer and the fallen angels. It's like they want to be God, mm-hmm. but they aren't in their attempt they're cast out of heaven. There's like a war in heaven. They're cast out, but it's that desire to be as powerful as God. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then humans do the same thing. They want to be as powerful as God. They, they want to build a tower that goes to heaven. They want to be gods. And that whole effort is dashed by God and their civilizations destroyed and they're spread out throughout the world. Yeah. And I'm looking at what we're doing right now. And it looks to me like we're trying to do it again. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that really happened, but we're right. repeating that story. It's like, if we can get to Mars and build an AI, we can outwit nature, we can outwit God, we can outwit our trauma and our psychology and build this utopia. And we're trying and and we don't realize the tower is getting really tippy. Right. We've built it too high. And so is that evil? Is that what evil is where you stop participating in the creation and try to become the creator? Is that what we mean when we call something evil? Maybe it is, you know? What what it looks like to me is that we live in this incredible creation, but we're not satisfied to experience it. Mm-hmm. Like if we looked at life and we really thought, I mean, this is so like old hat, new agey cliche, but if we looked at life and like, this is an experience to be had, a ride to go on, a school in which to perfect the soul, a place in which to develop character, we would be so different than the way we're looking at it now, which is this is a place to, is a prison. Mm-hmm. We have to hack it. Mm-hmm. Once we figure out how the controls work, we can beat those controls and become gods ourselves. Yeah. Um, I, there, this is, if I was going to do it in a parable, I would say it like this. A player in a video game, a character, starts to realize that this game is a program. Mm-hmm. And that if they start to look at things really closely, that it's all made of code, mm-hmm. then they think, wait, can I hack the code? Mm-hmm. Then they start hacking the code and making their own game that they're going to try to put themselves into where they're gods. We've awoken at some point in our life. I was probably three or four. I start like cognitively. I have memories suddenly. Suddenly I'm mm-hmm. alive. Suddenly right. in this world. Mm-hmm. And there's all this opportunity for experience. But it's not enough. Like, I've got to figure out how to take control of it. Like, rather than honoring it and being like, wow, whatever built this is much grander than anything that I could ever understand. Hence the idea of, like, worshiping your God. Because it's like, wow, what are you to be Mm -hmm. able to do this? Like, our minds are so limited, right? You create all of this. It's so beautiful. But instead of just being like, this is so beautiful, I'm excited to live in it, we want to be like, well, we're going to figure out how the genetic code works. We're going to make our own organisms. 
Mm-hmm. We're going to figure out how our brains work and we're going to download them into machines that we make. We're going to create an artificial intelligence. You know, people are talking about chat GTP four, like it's a, like it's a God. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that whole thing in the Bible comes Ooh. up again and again about creating an idol and then worshiping it. Mm-hmm. It's like, Ooh, we're, we're, we're waltzing down that road again. October 2022 is when ChatGPT really started coming out and it seems to really be taking society by storm. Mm -hmm. Do you care about it at all? Are you keeping an eye on it? I'm keeping an eye on it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do care about it. I'm emotionally invested in it more than I wish I was. Really? Um, Yeah. I'm very concerned about it. I just don't think yeah. the population really understands. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting and because I recognize that we're seeing a lot of um, sensationalism in the news. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see headlines constantly like this and this expert, this that expert says it could be the end of civilization. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, I mean, slow your roll a little bit, right? Right. Like right now you have an enhanced Google experience with this thing. It's not like we're talking <laughs> yeah. about. Um, but that said, when you have all of the experts in the, in the room telling you not to do this, mm-hmm. this is definitely Manhattan project level stuff we're talking about. Like actually I would, I would suspect that m- many, if not most of the top names in this field are all starting to get really cold feet. You're seeing a lot of the you know who's the guy who just left Google? He's like right. sort of considered the grandfather that. of AI. They say, mm-hmm. and he's like, "I'm out." Everybody's yeah. like, kind of like, "I'm out." Can't I can't? This shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. We. It's crazy when someone like Elon Musk is saying we need to regulate this. Mm-hmm. Think about a guy like he's in these okay cars. No, I mean, how much regulation is in car in the automotive industry? Yeah. Rockets, internet, like these are. He's in all of these areas where it does not behoove him to have regulation, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're calling for it because they're so concerned about what it will do. Now, it's similar to the Manhattan Project, I think, in its impact, but the average person never had access to nuclear weapons. Right. But the average person will have access to this technology. Right. And I think even worse, I should say that the technology will have access to the people. Uh-huh. That's maybe what's freakier. It will have access to you. I I had iPhone 1 and now I have whatever it's at, iPhone fucking 21 or whatever it is. I've been using it since it came out. It sucks to admit it, but it is an externalized part of my brain now. Oh yeah. You know when when you when you watch science fiction, Think about how wrong they got everything. They got they had all these ideas that were so far away from ships that can travel in interstellar space or even mm-hmm. inter even in within our own galaxy, nowhere near that. Beam yourself from one place to another, nowhere near that. Right? Make food out of non-food things, still can't do that. Still have to start with living creatures to make food, right? But then they have this generic thing. They just, all they could picture was walkie talkies. Like, <laughs> hey, beam us up, okay? Like, yeah. okay, it's a one way communicator. That's it. <laughs> they didn't ever imagine that this thing would also be networked to every other one, mm-hmm. that mm. it would also be a mapping and navigating software, that it would have 
a camera and a video camera in it that it would think about all the things your phone can do and then all the secondary things your phone can do by attaching it to other devices. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, in the morning, I meditate with an electromagnetic. I use an EEG for my morning meditation. So my mm-hmm. phone becomes by proxy part of my meditation EEG device or my heart rate monitors that I use for exercise. They feed through my phone. So your phone can then hook to another machine and do all this other stuff. No yeah. one ever imagined that in sci-fi. Isn't that amazing? Like we missed yeah. the most fundamental transformational technology. People couldn't even conceive of it. You know, like we don't actually have any sense of where this is going. Mm-mm. All we could picture was like flying cars and shit that we were like so entranced by that kind of stuff. Right. And we didn't see that it was going to go down this road. But anyway, yeah. So we are now cyborgs, essentially. Mm-hmm. What's nice is we can put it down. We can mm-hmm. give it up. But you want to talk about addiction. What's easier to give up, your smartphone or alcohol? Your smartphone or cocaine? We'll probably see a time where there's this movement to really get away from these things, like a kind of prohibition type of experience. In the in the one of the greatest fiction books of my in my opinion of all time is Dune. Yeah. And in Dune, he gets around having to address computer technology by this mythology that there had been this jihad against the thinking machines mm-hmm. called the Butlerian Jihad when humans rebelled and, and destroyed all the thinking machines and created a law that no machine could be made in the image of a man's mind. Wow. And so the only computers they have are human beings who've been trained to be computers. And I think that's a really powerful idea that we may at some point have to existentially destroy these things before they destroy humanity, not to say wipe us out, change Mm -hmm. us into something that no longer is humanity. Mm -hmm. You're really keeping an eye on these things. You're, you're paying attention to a lot of these things, but also over the last, especially 12 years, you've gone more and more and more into getting out into the wilderness. I remember early on, you came across a study about exposure to nature and what happens to the mind and like neural networks when exposed to nature for 30 minutes, three hours, things like this, and how extended periods when you're immersed in nature can have fundamental transformative effects on the mind. Now, you've been spending quite a lot of time over the last 10 to 12 years immersed in nature. Can you want to do you want to talk about that at all as far as it, how it's affected your outlook about addiction, society? Yeah, I think of it like this. I imagine our current world we're living in, there's actually three worlds and they're all overlapping. They're sharing space. They're like overlapped. There's the natural world that's been here for billions of years and we've been part of it for 300,000 years. Mm-hmm. There's the built environment. This is only like 6,000 to 12,000 years old. <laughs> Maybe Gobekli Tepe, let's say it's 15,000 years old, or mm-hmm. maybe Graham Hancock's right, it's 20,000 years old or something like that. But it, the built environment, that's the stuff we construct, city-states. Mm-hmm. That's The genus Homo has been around for millions of years. Mm-hmm. Homo sapiens have been around 300,000 years, but the built environment in agriculture has only been around for about 10,000 years. Yeah. It's a very small sliver of history. During that time, though, we've initiated what we now call the Anthropocene era. Mm-hmm. 
the geological era. This is like, you know, the Jurassic and the Cretaceous, these different periods are epochs. Mm-hmm. We came through the Pleistocene. And then that became, you know, that's when North America was covered in elephants and giant ground sloths and mm-hmm. armadillos the size of, of Volkswagen bugs. Like this is, you just go to like the New York Museum of Natural History and you can see these skeletons. This is only 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. That era ended and we entered the Holocene. That's the current epic, except that now people are calling this the Anthropocene. The This is the geological age where human-built constructed environments will be found in the archaeological record, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The way that different like strata layers reveal different times and different things that have happened historically. Yeah. Now, this is the era of the built environment. but So now we have the natural environment that we're adapted to and evolved for the built environment, which we're not well adapted to and actually is creating a lot of our degenerative diseases, but we're trying to adapt to. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly we have the digital environment. Mm -hmm. This is like the idea of the metaverse, this new technological environment. I don't want to end up like the Amish. Right. It's like, when I see the Amish, I think, first of all, I think it's very cool that they do what they do. But let's be mm-hmm. real. Like up here where I see them, they're using chainsaws and they got like tractors, you know, and they're still driving with horse and buggies. And you're like, I mean, does God really care what your pants look like? Is he right? Is he that particular that he has a certain pants style that he wants you to wear? <laughs> like, really? I don't want to get to where I can't function in any one of these three environments. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to lose my connection to the realist of the environments, which is the natural environment. Mm -hmm. So I need to be able to function in in Manhattan or LA. I find myself in O'Hare Airport and I need to be able to get around the built environment and not look like somebody's like, oh, there goes an Amish guy. (laughs) Like, in other words, I can't show up at a Hilton barefoot with a backpack. (laughs) What? <laughs> right. So you, I want to be able to be adapted to the built environment and begrudgingly, I need to understand how to navigate or else I lose fitness, right? Fitness for an environment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that we don't, I'm not picking on the Amish. I'm just as an example of people who've been like, we're not going to get with all this stuff. Right. If we go like, I'm not going to get with the digital environment we're going to fall behind and lose fitness. And so I want to be adapted to all three, but my loyalty is mm-hmm. to the natural environment. The other two environments are like the tower of Babel to me. Yeah. Particularly the digital environment, the built space, not as much. Mm-hmm. It's just that we're in the late stages of the built environment. So it's starting to look more like that, you know, mm-hmm. but the digital environment in particular, I think is an edifice to, it's like um in it's like an idol in the sense of the biblical in the biblical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an idol to you know the idea of humans as creators. Yet I I want to navigate them all. That said, you know I make my TV show Wild Fed about hunting and gathering mm-hmm. because I don't want to be an alien on my own planet. And I joked around. You guys probably have heard me talk about this over the years. But I have a lecture where I show a, a picture of an indigenous person 
a modern backpacker and an astronaut. And I always ask the audience, does the backpacker look more like the astronaut or the indigenous person? And it's so clear because the backpacker has this big pack on like the astronaut, big boots on like the astronaut, crazy shiny outfit on like the astronaut, all completely like decked out in all of this digital techno. I mean, when we go into the natural environment, we approach it as if it's a science fiction movie and we've just arrived on this planet and it's inhospitable to our species. So to go into nature, we need all this equipment, like as right. if we're truly like in visiting another world, mm-hmm. but we're from this world. Mm-hmm. And when you look at an indigenous people group, you're like, man, they, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense. I actually mean this in a positive sense. They are more like a wild animal in that environment Mm-hmm. Than they are like a modern person going into that environment. I'd take and, that as a compliment. Yeah, I mean it as a compliment, but people love to twist your words today yeah. about yeah. these topics, right? So, um, one of the key components of that that I have found the most important is your relationship to non human persons. So, I'll give an example. You guys no doubt have a relationship with the tree known as mesquite. Yeah. And when you're out in the environment, you don't think, oh, there's a tree. You think, oh, there's a mesquite tree. Mm -hmm. And there's a time of year where you know that mesquite tree will produce food somewhat reliably and you know how to access it. And you're driving down the road and your eyes pick it up and you're like, there's that tree I know, mesquite. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe you see the barrel cactus and you're like, you know what? I know the fruits of that barrel cactus are food if I need it. Mm-hmm. So you don't just think, oh, there's a trash can shaped green thing. <laughs> right. You know it. You're, it's a friend of yours mm-hmm. or the saguaro or whatever species you know. If you went into a new town you'd never visited and you didn't know anybody, you would feel very alienated and you would feel like you have no network or connections. Right. But if you went to your hometown, you would have all of these connections and you'd feel a kind of safety mm-hmm. because you know you were supported by that network of relationships. If you're the average person and you go into nature, it's very threatening. You don't know mm-hmm. anyone. You just see a wall of green and it's very threatening. And so we sit at home and we watch survival shows trying to figure out what techniques and tools you need to stay alive in this terribly inhospitable, hostile environment. Mm-hmm. But over the years for me now, when I go into my backyard, I go, oh, hey, hemlock, hey, Mm -hmm. red oak, hey, red maple, hey, club moss, hi, beaver, hello, blue jay. I've come to meet all of these species. Now, the way I've met a lot of them is through eating them, and that's because human beings are predators, and we do eat many of the things we're in relationship with. But when I go into the natural environment, and I am far from a expert in any of this. I mean, I just have what experience I've been able to glean. I know people who are much deeper naturalists than me, but when I go into my environment, I know a lot of the species. It's like going to my hometown. Yeah. Because I know like if I need a fire, that plant and that plant and that tree will get me there. And if I need carbohydrates, those plants. And if I need protein, those animals. And I know where to find them and what time of year to find them. And it is made me feel at home in the natural world. Mm -hmm. But the average person 
going into the natural environments like going into a new country or a new city where they are oh, yeah. absolutely alone. And so that drives them into the built environment. You wouldn't want to leave it. And if you do, you need to leave a note telling people when you're going to be back and you need to have your <laughs> GPS and you need your helmet and you need your pack and you need your oxygen tank and you need your water bottles and all the trappings because you're right. going off. It's like you're leaving the biodome and going out into Mars. And boy, right. you, you know that environment will kill you. This is hilarious because we were actually evolved in and built for that environment, but we have degenerated ourselves through domestication to the point that we have forgotten how to be there. Mm -hmm. And so whatever practices somebody has, whether it's like walking on a nature trail or you want to go like full bush hippie and learn to like make stick fires and live in a wiki up, whatever it is like you want to do to reconnect with the natural world you want to have literacy in that world in the same way you do want your kid to know how to navigate websites and use Google and maybe use chat GPT or how to use a phone because you need to, in the built environment, you need to know how to get an Uber or a taxi or whatever it is. Like those are survival skills in the built environment. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon we're all going to need to start developing survival skills in the metaverse or whatever iteration of that becomes real. But what we don't want to do, if we, do that at the expense of developing nature literacy will always be enslaved mm -hmm. by the built-in digital environments because we won't have any recourse to step out of them and go back to the source. Yeah. And that's kind of like the, if you think of the stranglehold the church had the Catholic church before the um, Protestant reformation where the average person couldn't read the Bible themselves because it was Latin. Mm -hmm. Right. And the priesthood controlled access mm -hmm. to the religion, right? It's sort of like that. If if nature is like um and and you can see where this is going, of course, if you guys have followed particularly like it used to be the agenda twenty one, then agenda twenty thirty, the great reset, all that mm -hmm. stuff. That stuff is all pushing people out of the natural world mm -hmm. and making it like access only or access by permission. This is our world. Right. So we want to have literacy in it. And, and that's by teaching people to hunt and gather in a modern context. Um, it's exciting because I get to introduce people to what I think is the very best food. But also I get to introduce them to the non-human persons that live in that world, plant, animal, algal, fungal. But also I get to help them develop some sense of literacy to transform their sense of the natural world from a threatening new environment to home. Mm -hmm. And that's the real reason I'm doing that. And so I call WildFed the Trojan Horse Ooh. Project to connect people back to wildness through food. That's so inspiring, man. That just makes me want to get out there. And it also sounds like it's so healing too. There is. And there's yeah. something else that came up for me too, because you mentioned literacy too. There's like this other world that seems to thread through the three that you talked about. And that's like money or finances. Financial literacy is something that has been lacking from me. Could I say us? Sure. Yeah. You know, we, we haven't been very literate when it comes to yeah. finances and all that. Um, and I know a lot of your perspectives in health, nutrition and wilderness and everything has evolved over the years. Um, do you have any insights that you've learned about money, finances that you could share for people who are interested in maybe curbing their addictions instead of spending money on alcohol and drugs, like maybe starting to invest 
more in building their financial wealth? Well, yeah, I grew up where there was no financial literacy and none was passed on to me at all. None. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, when I first met you guys, I didn't get the vibe like you guys were trying to figure out how to make a bunch of money. <laughs> you guys no. were on an odyssey, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> over those years, yeah, I built some brands and I put myself out there. Um, and I I had a early mentor. I, I chose some very bad mentors in my life, by the way. I, I need to acknowledge that. Um, mm. So when I say this person was a mentor, um, it was a very gray thing, you know, it wasn't black mm. and it wasn't white. It was like mixed good and bad. But I, because I didn't have a dad in my life, uh, I sought out a lot of male role models and many of them I now see if I was going to do it again, I wouldn't choose those people. But, mm -hmm. but anyway, um, I've always been somebody who tries to figure out what's useful. So even if a character is not a fully wholesome, usually you can extract some good. And one of the good things I got from this guy, was um, he had written up on his wall. He was a tattoo artist and he was sort of like an illegal pawn shop and people would sell all types of shit to him that they would steal mostly. Um, I was like 16 or so, 15, 16. But he had written up on his wall, poor is for suckers. Hmm. And that might've been my first piece of financial advice <laughs> that I received. Poor is for suckers. Kind of, I see the point, but. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it really was like, oh yeah. There's some choices here, mm. you know? Mm. So when it comes to money, that was like the first lesson I got. It's like, oh, you, whether you make money or not is, up, is really a personal decision. It's not like, oh, forces are conspiring against me. They are in the beginning. But, you know, like in the beginning, I grew up poor. Like there's nothing I was going to do about that. But there comes a point where it's like, oh, okay, I have agency. That's very empowering. The second one was... You know, I'm also somebody who, um, when I want to learn about something, I seek out teachers. It's hard because I've spent most of my life making myself smaller than I am mm -hmm. in order to be a student. And that means you have to always be willing to be the new guy who doesn't know anything, who gets treated like the new guy. Even though you're like, dude, you have no idea. I'm so badass in these other areas. Yeah. No, that's not, nobody's going to teach you. I have been able to develop mastery in a lot of different areas of my life by making myself a pupil all the time. And one thing I ha did a lot was I would talk to people who seemed to have a sense of money and I would say like, hey, what's your advice about dealing with money? A thing a guy told me once who came from a race of people who have got a very good handle on money because oh. they pass it down from the parents teach the kids. Somehow this is like inappropriate to talk about, but there are communities where the parents actually educate their kids about money. It's just like a good thing. I don't know why we act like it's yeah. bad, but right. um, this person told me, dude, you need to pay yourself. And that's called your savings. When you don't have a savings, you're stealing from yourself. You're ripping yourself off. Your savings is the money you pay yourself. Because think about it, you get a hundred bucks or that, I mean, a hundred bucks used to be a significant amount of money, yeah, right. a thousand bucks, right? You're going to pay a whole bunch of other people. 
You're going to pay the electric company. You're going to pay the car company. You're going to pay the insurance companies. You're going to pay your whatever, your mortgage, your bank. Whatever. You're going to pay a whole bunch of people. Are you paying yourself? You need to pay yourself probably 10% minimum religiously. That's not money you then spend. That's like the money that you put away. Another piece that I've come to understand a lot of us who are, you guys definitely fit in this category. You're very driven by your sense of passion, your sense of truth, your quest for truth. People like us can't sell out to a job we don't believe in for very long. No. Right? So you guys are doing this podcast. It's so vulnerable and raw because it feels real and right to you. Right. Like you couldn't be like, oh, I'm a rep for Q-tips or whatever. You just like wouldn't last long doing that. The problem with people like that is they tend to put themselves into fields that don't make any money. One of the things that's hard to get your hand. Now, there was a time in my life where I did body work. I was a massage therapist for a, in a chiro clinic for five years. The problem with that gig, it paid well, you know, I, I was good at it. So I'd make 75 to 85 bucks an hour. You know, this is 15 years ago, so it was good money. Mm-hmm. But how many clients could I see in a day? I'll tell you, five, and that was hard to do. Way easier to do two. One is nice for your body, <laughs> right? Five is hurts you. You only make money when the thing is scalable. Right. So you either need to be able to charge, okay, you either need to make a million dollars once or you need to make $1 a million times. So you need lots of transactions. And so I think that um, sometimes we miss that when we care, when we're very altruistic people. So for me to figure that out, it was like, okay, well, I'm a very altruistic person. I don't want to make money off something I don't believe in. Like actually, we'll sabotage it. So, okay, I start a supplement company with products I really believe in that I personally use and I can turn over a lot of volume and they're products people like, so they keep buying them so there's lots of transactions. So that's one way. Then another income stream for me is I have a television show, which I only make 10 episodes, but I make good money off each episode enough that those two income streams are very powerful for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I really think, yeah, multiple income streams multiple are crucial. Especially we saw with the COVID situation, man, you can be wiped out by a black swan. So you need to be make sure that you've distributed tension throughout a network, multiple streams, not just one. If you want to, and you know, I really believe in that thing. You become the kind of soul, you become the sum of the people you spend the most time around. They are the ones who are going to either motivate you or pull your motivation away. So if you want to get fit, you got to be around fit people. If you want to make money, you got to be around entrepreneurs. If you want to, you know, if you want to have a healthy relationship, you need to be around people with healthy relationships. And that's not easy stuff. The answer to money is the same answer to health is the same answer to fitness. It's like, it's like the same fundamentals of all these things. It's balancing, right? It's asking the right questions. It's being around the right people. It's a willingness to learn. And it's like, um, not compromising your integrity. Man, I feel you. I feel like I'm ready for this 100%. Like I couldn't really, the whole, I was just like drinking for years, man. Now that I'm sober, 
I, what you're saying is like, I really feel like I'm ready to take things into the next level, especially getting out into nature more. I need to go for a hike with my yeah, wife today. She's always <laughs> trying to get me to go for hikes on the Red Rocks. We live right here under Thunder Mountain. Yeah. And I was like, no, I got to hustle the podcast. I got to work, you know. Man, I need to like find yeah. that balance. And you know, dude. I don't know to what degree you guys can. I mean, I'm I'm not great at this, but routine and schedule are really important. Yeah. Routine is really important. Schedule is really important. And if you're out in nature and you know you sh- you need to be doing something, it's kind of hard to have the mm-hmm. full experience. The best is when you get the shit done you need to do so that when you go into nature, you're not thinking about what you should be doing because you know you've done it or you know you're going to be able to go back to it so that you yeah. can silo that scenario off for yourself enough to really enjoy it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But uh-huh. I just want to say kind of that I'm super excited for what you guys are doing. I think you guys are, this podcast is like very timely, like you're hitting at the right time. I think that the, like I was saying before, I think the movement of people who are going to go this direction is there's this grassroots thing that's happening. So I think you're hitting it just right. Um, and I, think this could be really big for you guys and i i it's so it's a very needed this voice is needed the service is needed so you guys i think you guys are hitting it at the right time and so if you play it out right i think this could be a really big thing i just think it's awesome i was super excited when i first saw it it was like oh yes and i did not know that you guys had suffered with addiction I hadn't seen that side of you guys, so I didn't know that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people didn't because we hit it so well. Yeah, well, that's a, it means you're yeah a good addict. So um, <laughs> anyway, I, I just am really impressed um, with this whole idea, and um, you got my full support. I think it's awesome. Thank you, man. Well, it was good to hear a little bit, some different angles about your life story too. I know you got to go, uh, but really appreciate you being on the show and sharing some of your stories and wisdom with us. Um, is there any place in particular you would like the uh, viewers to go besides just your website or social media? Yeah, my, my social media. So Daniel at Daniel Vitalis on Instagram is a great place to um, connect with me. And also like I'm personally there. Um, and then my website, wild-fed.com is the website for the TV show. We're on Outdoor Channel, so that's a cable subscription. But uh, you can access a couple of the seasons of the show. Season one and two are on Amazon Prime if you want to access them there. Um, and then, um, Monday nights at, um, seven 30, we're on outdoor channel right now. And season three is still airing and then, uh, we're shooting season four now. So very proud of that show. And, uh, hope people can check that out. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It is phenomenal. I'm going to watch some episodes tonight with Tracy with dinner, I think. Instead of hiking. Oh no, we're going to go for a hike and then we're going to watch Ends. wild fetch. I did see that one episode where you really re- recently got your wife, Ivani, out there hunting and shooting oh, yeah, for the first, first time. Hunt. Yeah, that was amazing. That's awesome. Oh, she's, yeah. She loves it now, too. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, yeah, it's awesome to have this opportunity to share that stuff with people. It's pretty um, crazy to be on TV with guns. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sometimes yeah. I'm like, is that really me doing that? But, uh, but you know, in the pursuit of food, I think... Um, people can really understand and connect to that. And so, uh, I, you know, I do so much foraging in the show. One thing I've always thought is like, I want a vegan to be able to watch this show and maybe think like, Oh, I hate that he goes and shoots those animals, but so interested to see that plant Mm -hmm. he's harvesting. I think you do that perfectly because I think a lot of vegans could enjoy your show. Um, because one of the unique things compared to other hunting shows I've seen is that at the end you take, 
you forage all these berries and leaves and herbs and you combine that with the meat that you shot, whether it's pigeon or, yeah. or whatever. Or and you buffalo, take, yeah. Or yeah. And you take the meat and all these wild herbs that you yeah. forage and put them together into a beautiful, amazing meal with community. I just think it's a full spectrum show, man. Thank you. Well Thank done. You. I'm looking at season four. Yeah, thank you, man. Well, you know, it's going to take me all over the country. I'll be up in Washington in a couple of weeks awesome. digging gooey ducks. And um, I get to go to Greenland this year. So it'll be my first time wow. in the Arctic. Um, oh, very excited about that. So, yeah, it's taken me to a lot of cool places. It's an awesome opportunity. I feel really, really blessed. Good for you. Well, God bless you. Thanks for being on the show. We'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. It's good right, to man. see you. All right.